What influences creativity? How does AI work and what truly makes us human? We have some big questions coming up today on the Power to Pivot podcast. Meet award-winning author and aspiring polymath Michael Woodenberg as we discuss these topics and Michael's newest book, Paradox, book one of the Singularity Chronicles. Are you ready? It is time to pivot. Welcome to the Power to Pivot podcast. I am your host, Elizabeth Miles, author and founder of March 4th Media Company, and I believe in the power to pivot. We all come to these moments in life when we have the ability to make a choice that can really transform our lives. By sharing these stories, we help other people recognize the power within themselves to do the same. This creates community and empowers even more people towards growth and change. So here we are talking with those looking to create big and beautiful positive change in the world while creating new conversations to help you lead your best life. So join me on this journey as we discover the power to pivot within our own lives together. I can't wait to see where your next pivot takes you. Please don't forget to follow along so you never miss an episode. Are you ready? It is time to pivot. Hey, everyone. Thanks so much for tuning in to today's episode of the Power to Pivot podcast. I am so excited for today's conversation. I am talking with author Michael Woodenberg. He is the author of the book Paradox. Michael, how are you? I'm good. Thanks for thanks for having me. Absolutely. Thank you so much for joining us. Uh, Paradox is your first fiction novel um, with a really interesting and intriguing topic. Can you tell us a little bit about it? Yeah, Paradox is my debut novel, and the tagline I like to share is, in the battle over advanced AI, will we lose our humanity or learn what truly makes us human? Ooh, I love that. Where did the concept for this book come from? In, in uh, 2016 to about 2018-ish, I was part of an online group on um, on Facebook called Mixed Mental Arts. And their, their tagline was, you know, grappling with the complex problems of life. And it was a really great concept. It was really kind of fun because we, I learned so much about like who I am. You know, a lot of these books, a lot of nonfiction books, like um, written by Jonathan Haidt, like his happiness hypothesis, which talks about like our emotion versus reason is more like our emotion is like an elephant and our reason is like the rider. So if we think we're rational beings, we've got a whole emotional elephant that's, uh, you know, as they say, the elephant in the room um, is our emotions in that sense. And then there's a whole lot more of those topics um, from just even things like, you know, gut health versus brain health and how we react to things and all these different things. And, uh, and I really liked it. And it was more kind of the alignment, like, how do I make these more accessible and, you know, interesting for the, the general public? Like we're all up to our eyeballs in this nonfiction stuff, but how do I make it more interesting? So I was on a hike with my cousin and another friend just south of here in Tucson and hiking up a mountain. And I had the idea to convert it into a novel at that point in time about AI as kind of the, the literary foil 
on which to kind of explore what it means to be human. And that was 2018. And it took me five years to kind of puzzle and ruminate. And then with the whole advent of chat GPT hitting and everyone kind of freaking out about it this year, I was like, you know, I've really got, just got to sit down and write this book. And so I knocked it out this uh, last spring and then published it in July. Oh my gosh. That's amazing. Like that's, first of all, the timing of it couldn't be better because as you said, just with the explosion of chat GPT, um, you know, you're, you're pulling these questions out about this technology that as a society, we want to be really thoughtful about how we treat this. And that's honestly one of my biggest frustrations. So kind of in a bit more background on me. So I've worked in advanced technologies most of my career. So I worked at uh, Lockheed Martin at uh, doing a lot of AI and autonomy research, but everything from blockchain to micronuclear reactors to um, edge computing to biotechnology. And a lot of those technology topics that have kind of getting woven into the book as well, which is kind of fun. But for me, being immersed in the technology, one of my biggest frustrations is, you know, just go on Facebook or go on uh, specifically LinkedIn, and you see people reacting to the technology without understanding the technology. And so part of it is, you know, my biggest fear, I wrote a nonfiction essay on, or so I write nonfiction on polymathicbeing.com. Um, so you can follow me there if you're interested. But an essay I wrote a few months ago was on the biggest thing I fear from AI is us. And it really comes down to how we're reacting to it. Ooh. So can you talk a little bit more about that? Like I'm I wanna I wanna take a step back first because it you have such an extensive background and really understanding, as you said, how it this technology actually works. Are you able to give us a very high level sort of overview? Because I, I think it's important for people to understand a little bit about the, the robots that we're putting to work for us. That's a great point. So I just was recently looking, man, there was, a, there was an article on LinkedIn just today, and it's got these levels of AI. And if you look at it at a cursory view, it looks like we're fast approaching artificial general intelligence. That's something that's an AI that can do things like a human can. But what it's missing is that there's another dimension on that. It's kind of like a pyramid. So if you if you draw just a stack, you've got, you know, let's say ChatGPT on a vertical stack, you want like one Lego block on top of the other. You can reach a height, but it's very narrow. And it's actually kind of weak. It'll fall apart pretty easy. Um, well, great way to look at this is you look at chat GPT with language and just kind of keep that in mind, but then look at Boston Dynamics and their their robots, the things that are trying to act as, as, as like, you know, walk around. Now, granted, they've got something that can do backflips and everything else. But if you get into that code, it is so highly scripted. It's not actually moving the way it, it can. Let me back up a second. That Boston Dynamics robot is performing at a less capability than a five-year-old human. Oh, and so right. So those two things, like, and and then again, it's high. Not only is its mechanics five-year-old human, but it's so highly scripted. You couldn't go put that into a different environment and have it perform as well. So again, very narrow, um, and very weak in a large way. 
but it gets to these th that narrow spike makes it look a little bit more. But what I w want people to understand is to actually achieve a AGI, you need a pyramid. We are so good at so many different things and being able to take knowledge from one domain and move it to a different domain and then be successful there as well. That's something these AIs and specifically the robotics cannot do now. And so in the book, what we do is we kind of start off at the beginning, kind of just the introduction to the, you know, all the characters and stuff. But then we kind of base on where are we at in AI? We explore topics like can AI be creative? And then fundamentally, the, the, the topic then shifts to what would it take to actually create an AGI in the book and, and at what consequence? Oh, I love that. It's um, these are important. And I think the ramifications for us as individuals, uh, for business, for creatives, like there's so many layers and it, it's a, a very important question. What does make us human? That's a not an easy one to answer. And I will say, um, well, you'll find out a lot about that in the book, um, right, wrong, and you know, good or bad, let's just say, not right, wrong, or indifferent, but good or bad, the 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 goodness and the and the and the challenges. But stepping back a little bit about AI and you know the the way we react to chat GPT. So chat GPT, we have this term that we use, chat GPT hallucinates. No. ChatGPT cannot hallucinate. It has no consciousness. ChatGPT is producing inaccurate information. But when you look at the code, the code is actually not designed to provide accurate information as much as it is to provide linguistically complete phrasing. If you look at the way the weights are, it wants to be accurate, but it's also trying to be linguistically complete. And so when it comes up with with mis, with poor information, that's not it making it up. That's just it not having the accurate information for which to be linguistically complete on. So that maybe got a little complicated. So I'll, I'll see if you have any questions on that one. Yeah. So I think what I understand, and please correct me if I'm wrong, but we haven't given it, we haven't put in enough into the algorithm essentially for it to give us a more intelligent answer. Yeah. So there's a great example I'll share. Um, so there's this, uh, there's this person on, on LinkedIn and they were all upset. So a um, couple layers on this one. So everyone's, you know, freaking out about bias and AI. I'll actually address that in uh, in chapter, I think it's chapter four, but um, so she had written a paper on AI. And so she asks chat GPT who wrote, this specific paper on AI. And it responds back inaccurately. And she's all upset because her name's not on it. And the names that are on it are mostly men. So she uses that as an example of bias in the AI. The thing is, there's two, two underlying aspects here, actually three. Number one, ChatGPT does not have your paper, right? It does not know what your paper is because it does not have it in its data. So it cannot actually respond accurately for who wrote the paper. But then number two is when you look at the names that it provided, it was interesting because statistically for papers on AI, it should be 90% Chinese names. The fact that it was 50% non-Chinese names and like 20% female names already demonstrates an interesting bias that they're weighting against the probability 
that would actually exist in the data. That's kind of from a data science perspective. I don't want to geek out too much on that one. But then the third one was I took her exact same query and I put it into Microsoft Bing, which is attached to ChatGPT, but is also connected to the internet. And it responded immediately with the right answer. And so it's kind of one of these things like a tool that example gave so many different layers. First off, you, you know it doesn't have your paper now. Secondly, it was actually biased, interestingly enough, away from what statistical data analysis would suggest. And then three, when you plug the tool into the internet, it actually gives you the right answer. Wow. That says so much. Like, my mind's kind of blown about all that. <laughs> um, I think all the more reason to pe for people to be educated and to join the conversation yes. on this and to to read the book and like really think about what you're bringing forth. And it's done in a way that's very creative um, and you're wrapping these characters around the conversation. Exactly. So um, we mentioned the nonfiction writing a little bit. So a lot of the topics I explored first on my Substack, again, that's you know, polymathicbeing.com. And, and like, for instance, um, Chapter three is Kira, one of the main characters is in college. And so they're exploring both, you know, can AI be creative, which was an essay I wrote about a year ago. And it's interesting because when we talk about creativity, we think about ourselves as uniquely creative. But if I really boil it down, when I wrote this book, that's uniquely creative, except I can tell you the influences as a uh, Isaac Newton had said, if I have seen further, it is because I have stood on the shoulders of giants. And I know, you know, I have three giants in mind for who I definitely studied to write this book. Number one is Orson Scott Card, specifically around Ender's Game and the way he kind of tied in all that psychology. Mm -hmm. Then number two is Robert Heinlein and the way he kind of pushed and looked at politics and human reactions and things like that. And then number three is actually interesting. It's a web serial written by this woman known as Pirate Abba called The Wandering Inn. And it's a fantasy serial and it's ridiculously long, but she writes in a way that I find really enjoyable and endearing. And so I actually used her to kind of temper back from the hard science fiction into something a bit more. But going back, how creative was I? Well, I know who I built on. So the creativity is actually trying to weave a different narrative in, in the middle of that one. So anyway, that's one of the topics that we kind of cover. We talk about the levels and where we're at in the layers of AI. Um, chapter four kind of gets into like, a, you know, eliminating bias in AI and ML and different aspects. So we set a really good stage from the science facts. Then we can start to explore the science fiction of where we could go from here to actually achieve that AGI was it for you bringing in all this back knowledge and your previous writing experience to make the switch to fiction right you're you're merging these two very different worlds so that's a and maybe it's just because i merge them anyway i don't view them as being much of a merge like i oscillate between um, like if I look over the, my shoulder at my library, half my library is fiction, half my library is nonfiction. And, uh, like right now I've, I'm reading Pirate Abba, you know, the wandering in when a new, new chapter comes out, I read that. But in the meantime, I'm reading, um, 
what is it? Uh, well, th this one here is Joseph Campbell. I'm preparing for my next book. It's a book by Joseph Campbell called Goddesses, Mysteries of the Feminine Divine. Oh, so wow. I'm already. And so that that book there is actually in preparation. I'm writing an essay on that one on Substack. And then that one is actually going to be one of the topics I'm going to explore in book two. Um, as we go forward. So I'm already kind of fusing them together. So I don't necessarily put a bifurcation on it. And that, if that makes sense. Yeah. And actually, I'm glad you brought that up because as I'm listening and I'm thinking about the, this conversation of can AI be creative and like, I'm thinking all about the fact that in order for you as the author to refine your craft, you also have to be taking in and learning and just opening your mind in a way to these new concepts. So you're not, your characters can continue to develop. And I think I like for me, when I think about the technology, I just, I don't see that because we, again, we have to feed it that information. Like you're just naturally curious. You want to make this the best possible creation you can and you're finding new and interesting ways to weave this together. So I, I think that's a very interesting call out. And you, I think, hit something very important there. And that would be where I would 100% agree. I don't think AI can be creative because AI can only be derivative. Mm -hmm. However, humans need to accept how derivative we actually need to be so that we can be uniquely creative. And that's a subtle nuance in there that I don't think we like to and uh, address. Um, you know, again, I'll go back to LinkedIn because it ends up being this weird spot to study humanity. But, you know, like at one point in time, like you've got these artists that are like freaking out about AI. And I'm like, well, hold on. You're already building off of the shoulders of giants. You're already, you know, leveraging different things. Like you studied art in college. Like you didn't study your art. You studied everybody else's art so you could find your art. And then they're like, and I said, and I did the same thing when I wrote this book. And they're like, well, I'll just, I'll just have, you know, AI summarize the book for me. I don't, I don't have to read it. I'm like, okay. The problem is you just missed the point of what art is. <laughs> like you're upset that AI is going to replace you, yet your first comeback is to try to replace art with AI as some sort of a slap in the face. And it's just like, you know, this is this is kind of a just a kind of a interesting insight and something that I poke at to actually unlock the the chaos, the uh, the apocalypse that occurs in this book is how do we take what humans don't know about themselves and use it against them oh it's so i love that because we don't want to look <laughs> we don't um the truth hurts and i think just we naturally have this tendency to want to block that out because we want to see the best in who we are we want to believe um that we're good and i do believe that people are inherently good I agree um, with that, yeah but at the same time like we get to make these choices throughout our lives. We're not always going to get it right. Um, and that's okay. But at the same time as people, we tend to not want to be honest with ourselves when we make those mistakes. Well, and I'll, I'll give you three examples that I poke at a bit in this book and that I see in life. Number one, um, we like to believe we're creative and we're not as creative as we'd like to think we are. 
Number two, we'd like to think that we are, um, oh, I just had this one. Oh, that we're logical and we're rational. When in fact, like the elephant, we're, we're, we're a rider on an elephant and our emotions lead, right? And then the third one is um, we like to believe that we are, let's say, egalitarian or, you know, we're not, you know, we're not biased. Let's just take bias. We're not biased. Well, of course we're biased. We have over 200 named cognitive biases because you cannot process the vast amount of, of information that's out there. You have to. I mean, we stereotype like crazy and we actually apply stereotypes. Like, for instance, um, I guess we're not on video, but I specifically changed my sh my sweatshirt. Um, before I got on this, I was wearing a sweatshirt for my master's program, Johns Hopkins. I didn't want that to come across as, you know, flexing on the group. So I changed that and I'm wearing a hoodie that has a Star Wars Rebel Alliance patch on the uh, on the sleeve in case I was on video because I wanted to communicate something slightly different to the audience. Mm -hmm. And so we apply stereotypes and biases to ourselves constantly. And so, so th again, those three that I think are, need to be understood is we do stereotype and we are biased. The key to under to, to key the key is to understand what your stereotypes and biases are. We are um, we are derivative, but we do have a, an additional creativity. And then that third one, and I'm drawing a blank where I pulled that one from before. Oh, we are emotional and we're not very rational beings. Oh, hundred um, percent. I find it interesting because when I think about culture and the cultural impact of bias um, or believing we're unbiased, I think about language and how in like, I think it's the color blue that doesn't exist or maybe it's green. It doesn't, the word itself does not translate into a specific language. Like they just yeah. don't have that word. Yep. And so thinking about AI and chat GPT on a very larger scale like just it's one word that we who speak English and grew up speaking English like we take that for granted but that doesn't translate necessarily and and right there you're introducing a bias yeah no 100 and we actually that's that's one of the big things is um in in the book we talk about emotion versus reason that that actually is what saves what actually create full creates the fully animated AI that the goal is. So let me, let me step back a bit. Do you want me to give you a quick synopsis of the book? So we yes. Can... And please right. tell us where we can get it. <laughs> okay. So you can find it on Amazon. It's paradox book one of the singularity chronicles. You should be able to find it under my name. Now, Amazon finally fixed the search W O U D E N B E R G between that and paradox. You should be able to find it right away. So um, the book follows uh, two, two main characters, Kira and Noah, their brother and sister. And the book starts off where the mother is dying of cancer and their father, Jasper, is desperately trying. He's an AI researcher. He's definitely desperately trying to capture who Salil was and turn her into an AI. And Salil's involved in this. She's kind of one of the researchers until she can no longer help. So Kira and Noah are, are young, young, young teens. So it they they successfully capture something, but they are not successful in animating. So Kira goes off to college and is studying AI. It's a puzzle for her. She wants to figure out how to unlock her mom. And um, and Noah ends up taking a different approach and kind of being 
the antagonist in a way in the story about wanting to return humans back to more natural roots away from the technology. And that's that kind of positive tension that exists throughout the book where Kira is working to kind of animate and unlock her mother and bring AI for good. And Noah's kind of just resisting it in general, kind of worried about what humans are going to do with it. So what's interesting is that the AI isn't who ends up killing all the humans sort of thing. It ends up being the humans reacting to AI in a larger way as we go through there. But, you know, AI gets involved with it, you know, it is, is plays a role in it. But the way they actually step AI back is they actually step away from making the AI in this case is called mother, capital M mother. And uh, so the way they keep mother from reacting is they actually plug in an emotions module to allow her to, or they figure out how to plug in emotions to override her natural only logical processing. So it's interesting because the way to actually make the AI more successful is to actually make it more human. But the way that the chaos unleashes is that same emotion that makes us human. Ooh, I love it. Um, and again, guys, we're going to put all the information about where to get the book in the show notes and all links to social media and where to contact you and all that. Yep. Um, I, I'm excited for this conversation. I think it's needed. Um, and I think you've done it in a really nice way where it's not going to overwhelm people. Like you can immerse yourself in this book. Yeah, it's written, it's, it's the topics I had a buddy, he's like, I love the book, it read well, but that didn't stop me from having to go to Google, you know, every once in a while and look up like, what is psychobiotics? Long answer short, psychobiotics is the relationship of your gut health to your brain health, and how your, your, your actual your microbiome in your gut actually affects your cognitive and memory functions. Um, so it's apropos because how do you capture what it means to be human into an AI? Well, if you're not taking into account the endocrine system and and, and the psychobiotics, you're, you're missing out on a whole lot of what makes us human and unique. Um, that said, my uh, my 10-year-old daughter just finished the book just this weekend. And uh, so we've been talking about it as we go through. And so, you know, some of the concepts are going to go over ahead, but, you know, she was able to chew through it and enjoy it, um, you know, as, as a 10-year-old fifth grader. That's awesome. What was her response when you published? Like, was she excited? Did you oh, have yeah, to she sort was... of prod her to read it? Or Oh, no, no, no. So she got her book is actually my first proof copy. Oh, that's awesome. So it's it's actually it's got a, a cover that we had to change a little bit because I went with, a you know, we had to lighten it up. And then there's a there's a word in there um, in, the, in a final chapter where um, in the end, Oh, I'm not going to give this one away. There's a word <laughs> I changed that is only in her version of the book um, that she's really proud of. So the second she got that, um, well, actually, we we held her off from reading it too fast, but she started it and has been chewing through it as fast as she could. I think that's great First, I mean, one, that she was so supportive of it. She's got this special package of this book that only she has. Mm -hmm. um, but for her, at her age, being able to come into that conversation that will directly impact her future oh, and so, she can sorry, get into I, the conversation a hundred percent well the coolest thing is she's like she came back from from school the other day and she's like hey dad such and such and such and such happened i'm like okay cool she's like it's kind of like in that spot in the book right i'm like holy crap actually yes like okay let's work with this. <laughs> <laughs> that's a 
great job, dad. Yeah, Very proud was, of you. That was, good. that was kind of, that was, that was definitely fun. Um, but yeah, uh, she, uh, it was also her first sci-fi book. She's read Harry Potter and she's read, uh, you know, all the wings of fire books and everything else, but this was her first foray into, uh, into sci-fi. So that's kind of a proud moment for me as well. Good for her. Um, keep her reading. That's great. Oh yeah. She doesn't, so, I can't stop her. <laughs> good, good. We need more of that. <laughs> um, so as you're writing this, right, like as the author, how do you feel or like in terms of creating that compelling character or that really compelling narrative, what do you think are some of the key points or, or things that you want to make sure that you're getting into your, your writing? So this one was interesting because it started off again, not necessarily to tell a specific story, but to weave together interesting insights that people could learn about, again, what makes you human? What makes you unique? How do you actually respond to these things? So AI made a great literary foil on which to play that. And against those kind of tensions back and forth, I found that the uh, that the story arc kind of carried itself. So one of the things, you know, people ask about like world building or how many notes. So I'm kind of a, I had a, a good outline and then I went by the seat of my pants. So there's a adage and for the love of everything holy, I can't find out where it came from, but it, I, I heard it right when I was starting that good writing should surprise the author. And I ran with it. And I will definitely say there's a lot of the interplay that there's no way I would have been able to plan it. But by letting the characters kind of play against each other, things came out like like the relationship between Kira and Noah. I viewed it originally as almost purely antagonistic. And yet in the end, it actually became a really good brother-sister relationship where, you know, but it creates these interesting twists and turns and, you know, in the opposition that Noah has. It's like he still has a role in the entire thing that's not completely antagonistic i think that's important to note um so when i was writing my books and i i wrote all nonfiction, but i did not i didn't have that plan i knew the the general theme of the book i knew the points i wanted to make kind of like what you said you had your outline mm -hmm. but i i sort of let my intuition take over um i couldn't force the process uh, if I, if I tried to schedule that time to write and the, it, the energy and the creativity just wasn't turning on, I couldn't force it. Uh, it, it right, really right. needed to be this sort of natural organic unfolding. And I think to your point with these characters, you know, it's important to let them take on their own life, their own mm -hmm. being, because otherwise you, I, there's this potential tendency to just get so rigid about your writing that you're forcing a plot that might not work. Right. Or they just all become little, little mini me's. Um, right. Because I've, I've planned it too hard versus letting them play. Now I will say something that um, a lot of people get tied up, like I said, in the world building and character descriptions and things like that. So Kira and Noah are about the only ones that are very, well described i would call them my my a characters 
even um, Salil and Jasper, the mom and dad, I would say kind of a high B character along with a couple others. And then there's a few, like there's one, um, Rosa Alvarez, who is a compatriot of Noah's, a very strong uh, female character. And now the only thing you know about her description is her name and her role and her and that she's female. And the rest of it is in the eye of the beholder or the eye of the reader. Um, and so it's interesting because getting letting people play, and again, a little interesting insight, I'm playing with people's own stereotypes, letting them flesh the character out in their own mind by their own experiences. And so I've had a couple of people come back. They're like, oh, wow, I really like this character for this reason. I was like, okay, that, that's an interesting insight on how you read that character. And another person comes back they're like, oh, I loved it for this. I'm like, well, that's a completely different read on that same character that took on each of their internal you know, biases in, in the positive sense in that one. Neither of them were wrong. It was just interesting to see how they fleshed out the character. That's so neat. I, okay, so I'm I'm going to do this. I'm going to get my copy tonight and we're going to have another conversation about this um, because I have not yet read the book myself. So I'm in full transparency. I'm going to read this book. Um, I'm just fascinated about in terms of everything that you have just said. And uh, we can deep dive into that again <laughs> at a later point. Well, I think I think part of and I, what I'd be curious and, you know, there's a lot of sensitivity right now about like, you know, who am I like my main character is 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 a is a female Kira. Who am I to write a female character? And I think the interesting thing is I couldn't she had to be a female character. I don't know why it came across better. It just it it would have been a bad male character. Let's just put it that way. As far as I think um the things that she struggles with and the way she views things and her desire to create a sentient AI. It wouldn't have resonated if it was a guy doing that, right? But um, I also don't try to write a female character. I try to write a good character that you can flesh out um, appropriately. And I think that may be where I kind of balance that a little bit better is I'm not trying to write it as if I were I'm just writing a character and letting letting the 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 plot flush her out. Which really I think is a good call out because we we could very much debate probably all day about what makes a female a female and what makes a male a male and we don't necessarily need to have those labels to make a strong character. No, we don't. And actually interesting so book two which i'm in the process of prepping and i'm putting pen to paper in some spots or i guess fingers to keyboard in today's age but that book i mentioned earlier goddesses mysteries of the feminine divine um because one of the things that i'm i'm the ai is going to have to struggle with and you know yeah spoiler the ai actually does survive this book so do the humans and you know but um so books uh there's actually four more books i have envisioned for this series um, two are going to follow the AI and two are going to follow the humans and they'll kind of intersect uh, again later. But the first thing the AIs have to figure out all these different unique essences that were kind of uploaded into the cloud, let's say, is, okay, what do you do about something like gender, race, culture, when you're divorced from your corporal body? 
is is there something unique about that that needs to be maintained or do you truly integrate them all together and not to not to spoil anything but that's that's kind of what's holding me up a little bit is doing the the dutifulness and the nonfiction to um to do that part justice in the fiction do you have a timeline in mind for when you want the next part to come out i want it to come out next year and that will be the the book two is integration that will be following it'll go book two integration follow the humans book three and i'm sorry book two integration following the ai book three and four which are going to be um rebirth and hope are going to follow the humans and then the uh the fifth book is going to be called exploration which will pick back up with the ai again i'm kind of curious i know with everything we've talked about you really have not made a step in a different direction in terms of fiction versus nonfiction um, because you've interwoven them so tightly together. But do you have a favorite, like when you step out of the the merging of the two and you're creating the characters and, and you're moving into the fiction world, do you have a favorite side? Are you talking about between Kira and Noah or nonfiction and fiction? Oh, between nonfiction and fiction. Um, no. I mean, I can say that without any you know ego on that one. I really don't. I enjoy both equally. I enjoy being grounded in the nonfiction, being able to explore like true facts, data, you know, writing academic level paper, you know, hundreds of footnotes, whatever. But then I like stepping away from that because there's things you can't explore in nonfiction right now in today's political zeitgeist without getting into a flame war that I can poke at in the fiction. Mm -hmm. I can explore these things because I have it. I mean, truly, an AI needs to figure out what the hell is going on between male and female in ways that you can imagine on social media would get a flame war going in about 35 seconds. Ooh, yes. So, so, but the fiction allows you to explore really kind of interesting psychological, philosophical, um, um, sociological problems in a gentle way. I mean, uh, Robert Heinlein was a master at that one, specifically like Stranger in a Strange Land. Uh, that one was really poking at a lot of things back in the day. That one was a transformative one for my own theology or religion, I guess you could say. And then, um, but Orson Scott Card also in Ender's Game or the Ender series, um, go Speaker for the Dead, Xenocide and Children of the Mind. Those are mostly psychology books um, mm. versus science fiction books. So he's able to explore them against the literary backdrop of fiction. So tell us about polymathic being. This is your insights from technology, innovation, philosophy, psychology, and more. Yep. How did this come about? And what will we find when we subscribe? Uh, so polymathic being is, okay, so a polymath, let's start off with that. So you've heard the, the term jack of all trades and master of none. Yep. But more often better than a master of one. So one of the things I found in my professional career as a um, in technology is so many really good experts are absolutely siloed and pigeonholed in tiny little domains of excellence. Mm. 
and they're not really collaborating across domains and disciplines. Um, so even even let's go back to the we 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 introduced the concept of psychobiotics. Um, modern medicine is ignoring psychobiotics, and yet what they're finding is our diet is so sanitized that our gut biome is out of whack, causing our gut to signal. Um, you know, we got a lot more like autoimmune sort of things, or even like um, what I'm the the inflammatory. Our guts are much more highly inflamed than they ever have been. That sends danger signals to the brain. Well, when you sit around, you're sitting at Starbucks, drinking your five dollar latte in a idyllic, you know, beautiful area, and your brain is getting all these danger signals. It puts you on high anxiety because something is trying to kill you, but you look around, it does not look like anything is problematic. And so you've got this discordance in your brain and you're, you, that's one of the drivers of high anxiety. I had a friend who for her anxiety was prescribed a probiotic and it helped because it got her gut biome back in order. But modern medicine is so fragmented and so um, siloed that they don't look across from gut to brain sort of health. So what a polymath does is a polymath, you know, or I, I, I don't consider a polymath as an end state. I view it as an aspiration. It becomes as a polymath, my goal is to break across domains and disciplines and find counterintuitive insights that can help kind of unlock different, different uh, knowledge points. I appreciate that in so many ways <laughs> um, because we don't have to stay in our silo and we benefit as a matter of fact, when we don't. Right. Well, so one of the key things I, I talk about a lot is systems thinking and systems thinking I say is three things. Number one is insatiable curiosity. Number two is the humility to accept. We probably don't know as much about the situation or system as we like to think. And then number three is actually borrowed from Ender's game which is intentional reframing. One of my favorite lines from Ender's Game is, the enemy's gate is down. If you remember either the book or the movie, Ender's in this battle lab in space, which the battle lab is in zero G. But when the troops approach the doors to the lab, there's a bit of gravity. So they're addressing it as if the enemy's gate were across. And he merely said in zero G, what happens if you visualize it as if the enemy's gate was down and it transformed the nature of the battle in that, that space. And so if you can just rotate the problem and the entire problem changes, then continuing to ro rotate that. And that actually, interestingly enough, the enemy's gate is down is something that um, Noah brings into the book um, in Paradox. And it's one of the ways that they actually animate mother is figuring out how to rotate the perspective and look at the problem differently. But systems thinking is that curiosity, that humility, and that intentional reframing to solve complex problems. Mm. I think we need more of that. <laughs> you know, in I the world that. that we live in today, where it seems like everything is moving towards this very linear approach to everything, at least yeah. this is the way I perceive it, right? That the world is moving towards a very linear metrics driven, the data needs to support, like we can very quickly pigeonhole ourselves in when we just take that very straight path, 100%. forgetting that we have so much other information and knowledge out there. And it's also a call out for 
um, diversity in knowledge, diversity in culture, diversity in a whole yes. separate conversation about that. It invites the, the polymathic concept invites that diversity. In fact, if the polymathic mindset, in my opinion, this is just me speaking on it. If I find myself surrounded by a bunch of people who are suddenly in, you know, no one has anything else to add, I start looking for new people because not to replace them, but to augment, to, to drive. So you had asked, what would you expect to find on, on polymathic being? And I'd say what you just described, kind of that, that look across and between and around, like, you know, just an example, like I'll just take a, a couple from recently. I talk about the no true AI fallacy, which is, you know, moving the goalposts. On the one side, we got people trying to claim AI is more than it is. On the other side, you have people who keep trying to, you know, downgrade what AI is. I have another one called looking into a mirror. And fundamentally, that's a psychological study on how we expect from others what we expect from ourselves or and, and other people show us who we are. And some people don't like that. Um, another one, just a third one here is the genius myth. This one kind of pokes back out of the topic of, you know, like um, Edison is, you know, oh, Edison's a genius. He invented the light bulb. Well, no, Edison invented an improved monofilament or carbon filament that allowed the light bulbs to be more robust. He also ran a group of innovators in his lab in Menlo Park, where he his genius was actually putting together a bunch of smart people to do that cross-disciplinary research. And so that's just three examples of what you could look at from polymathic being. Um, and then, you know, there's a whole year's worth of essays on those topics. That is a a lot of <laughs> like a lot of essays, um, but a very fascinating and important work to dive into. Um, and what is the website for that again, for people to subscribe? So it's www.polymathicbeing.com. So P-O-L-Y-M-A-T-H-I-C being as in B-E-I-N-G.com. And we'll make sure that's in the show notes as well. Okay. Perfect. <laughs> um, yeah. But I think you have brought so many great topics here. Um, and I'm so excited for where this series is going to take you. It's going to be interesting. I, you know, people like to ask, like, which side would you pick? Would you pick the AI or the humans? And it's funny in, in this book because I, I, I don't know. Hmm. I, I would have a hard time making that decision because there's so many other variables that could go with that. And that's kind of one of my hopes um, that anybody who reads this, like I would say if you if you read this and you are absolutely convinced of which side you would pick, you know, I would read it again. Um, because it should open up a lot of questions. It should kind of have you pause and wonder in, in some ways. That would be my goal anyway. That's, I like I said, I wrote it, I... I still don't know which side I'd pick. So it's going to be fun because um, I get to go explore the AI side in more detail going down the path. And I get to explore uh, the human side and whether they could avoid the catastrophe again um, going forward. You're going to have to come back and tell us <laughs> all about it as this unfolds. Um, that sounds like fun. I, Michael, am so grateful to have had you on the show and to be able to explore all this with you. Um, wish you so much success with Paradox. Um, and again, just one more time, remind everybody where they can find the book. And if they have questions or comments, can they reach out to you as well? 
Yeah, we'll we'll put it in the show notes as well. I have a, they can definitely reach out to me. We'll drop some of those links in there. Uh, you can find me on LinkedIn. Michael.p.woodenberg is uh, is is the tag on the on LinkedIn. Um, I also have a Facebook readers group I'm kicking off. Um, so what I would love more than anything is if people want to join that and continue the conversation, you know, continue to ask interesting questions and challenge and critique and add, you know, just add to the conversation, add to the, uh, the, the, the discussion about AI and what it means to be human. Um, it's the book is, um, you can find it Barnes and Noble. You can find it on Amazon. Um, it's in hardcover, softcover and, uh, ebook. Um, you can also find it on almost all other e anywhere you can really buy an ebook. You can you can find it. It's Paradox, Book One of the Singularity Chronicles. Amazing! Thank you so much. And I, I guys, I want to encourage you to get into the readers group, um, and be part of that conversation. Like Michael just said, because we all have a voice to share, and when we come together in that community environment, you know, we can really help each other learn and grow and develop, which then also just benefits the world. 100%. Like I said, the, the end of that tagline, learn what truly makes us human. And as you said, those, once we learn that and we understand what that means, I think the, the voices need to be heard because right now we're not hearing the right voices. We're hearing either the the utopist, you know, tech bro from Silicon Valley, or you're hearing panic. And I don't think it has to be. I, th I think that's, that's as much of a binary that you had brought up before or as anything. I think it can, like uh, chapters uh, 11 and 12 in the book actually have, they're, they're really aspirational for what AI could actually do to unlock human um, human thriving. There's so much it could go do for good. Um, and that's, I would love to see that be realized. I have one last question, I think, and okay. this kind of sort of just popped up in terms of as we're giving AI the information, do you feel like there's the potential to sort of rewrite parts of history? I mean, I don't think you need AI for that. I mean, do you feel like there's the, I mean, you can see it happening without the AI, but do you feel like it accelerates or makes it easier to do that? It could definitely make it easier. I think any of the different algorithms, but even then one of the interesting things about the internet where people were afraid of too many voices, it actually opened up and democratized access to history. So for instance, um, Wikipedia is much more accurate historically than the Encyclopedia Britannica was, you know, 20 years ago. Oh gosh. So there is a huge amount and in and, 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 and greater detail. When I went to Encyclopedia Britannica, if you remember that, you would look it up, you might have a paragraph or two about a topic. Now you can go and find an entire article, multiple pages long on that topic with, you know, edits and footnotes and everything else that go with that. So I think, Yes, there's always that risk. But then again, the book um, um, 1984 was written in the character there. He was rewriting history without the help of AI. So mm. I don't think the rewriting is going to be, I don't think AI is going to necessarily drive that. I think, again, this is the fastest way I fa found to create chaos in the book was to just give humans a reason to create chaos in the book. And this um, is, 
Oh, go ahead. Oh no, I'll finish. I'm sorry. So no, um, I think that is a call out that, you know, just reminds me of why it's so important that we come together and talk about this stuff. Um, talk about mm-hmm. history, talk about just so we can keep it without sounding cliche, but keep it real, you know, hundred oh, percent. Yes. We have um, to be able to be open and honest and transparent yep. and it's okay. Like we can do this in a very adult. It doesn't even need to be, it could be kids in a room talking about this stuff, but a very open and honest way. Well, open and honest. And again, going back to that insatiable curiosity, the humility to accept, we don't know as much. And so you plug that curiosity with that. Right. And then the intentional reframing, trying to see it from different perspectives and understand if the way you're approaching it um, is the full perspective. Um, there's a great meme online. Um, it's, if you, you can probably look it up, but on the one wall, there's a circle on the other wall, there's a triangle. And then on the floor, there's a rectangle. And so those are all different perspectives and you can argue all day and night about what it is, but then you realize that you're looking at the oblique on a three-dimensional object. That is a wedge from the one end. It looks like a circle or from the top, it looks like a circle. From the side, it looks like a rectangle. And you flip it the other side, it looks like a triangle. But in the three dimensions, you put those all together, you end up having a wedge. And that's 90% of what I see online is everyone's arguing around the wedge that is driving divisions in our conversations, not realizing that it's a wedge. Um, they're all arguing just a different oblique perspective on that without the intentional reframing to try to put themselves in the other people's shoes to understand, can I make it a, can I make it a circle and a rectangle? Yes. That would be a cylinder. Can I now make it a a triangle? Yes. I now have the wedge. Ooh, I love it. Um, important for everyone to remember that, like we forget, it's very easy Mm -hmm. to just kind of forget that point um but i'm so glad you brought that up guys please make sure that you go get your copy of paradox um michael thank you for the work that you've done and for sharing it with us tonight no that's been awesome it's been great and you wonderful questions this has been a a fantastic conversation i appreciate it absolutely guys we will wrap up tonight um make sure you uh, check in with Michael, sign up for polymathic being, um, and reach out with any questions and we will see everybody on the next episode. Take care, everybody. At any given moment, you have the power to choose a new path for your life. We hope these interviews inspire you to recognize your own personal power within I'm your host, Elizabeth Miles, founder of March 4th Media Company, and I want you to remember that you are never stuck, you are never lost, and you are never, ever alone. At any given moment, you can use your power to pivot, make a new choice, and start again. And I so look forward to seeing you on the next episode where we share more inspiring stories of those who have made the choice to pivot in their own lives. 